0: I want to ask you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. And our Bible reading this morning is just going to be the very familiar first three verses. Colossians 3, just the first three verses of this chapter. Verses that many of you could probably quote by heart. It's sometimes dangerous for a preacher to come to such familiar verses because you think, well, I already know what this says, I already know what this means, and so you can let your mind wander a little bit, but I trust the Lord will help us to focus our attention this morning, especially this morning as we come around the Lord's table and as we prepare our hearts, we're told in the scriptures to examine ourselves and to make diligent use of the means of grace in preparing ourselves before we come to partake of these elements. And so I trust the Lord will use these verses as a means to that end as we look at them today. So Colossians chapter three, beginning our reading in verse number one. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Amen. We'll end the Bible reading there at the end of verse 3. Let's seek the Lord in prayer again. Let's ask His help as we come to consider these particular verses today. Let's pray. Father, with our Bibles open before us now, We do pray that you, by your spirit, would come and speak to every heart. We pray that this would be a word of encouragement for us today as we sit under the preaching of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Several weeks ago, I saw a picture on a a t-shirt with a quote. You may have heard of the Greek philosopher named Socrates. Well, this was a quote from another Greek philosopher, a made-up philosopher, obviously, the great Greek philosopher Mediocrates. And the quote was, meh, good enough by Mediocrates. Well, in our home, that's become something of a joke uh, when we just say, That's good enough. Or as the great mediocrities would say, good enough, right? According to the dictionary, the word mediocre means of only ordinary or moderate quality. Neither good nor bad, barely adequate. To be mediocre is to be good enough, but just barely. To be mediocre is really to just be average at best. It's not bad, but it's definitely not something that you would say is good. It's just good enough to not actually be bad. You know, there's a lot of restaurants that are that kind of way. You you may go to a restaurant and you order and you eat the food and You think, you know, there's not really anything wrong with this, but I probably won't go back. Uh, We have a place in the United States called Golden Corral. I I don't think you have any golden corrals here. If you ever are on vacation, or if you people say holiday, do you go on holiday or vacation? But if you go on holiday to the United States and you come across a golden corral, I would recommend that you keep looking and you go someplace else. Golden Corral is a a massive buffet, they have tons of food, and none of it's really all that good, it's not really all that bad, it's just mediocre, it's okay. Sometimes we're satisfied with mediocre. You know, all the dollaramas around, the dollar stores and those kinds of stores that are out there would prove that Sometimes we're okay with the mediocre. You know, you, you can buy some kitchen gadgets at Dollarama. They're not great. They're going to get the job done, but they're not high quality. They're not going to last a long time. They're not something that you would really want to invest in as a, a, you know, a long-term thing to use. It's just mediocre. It's, it's fine, but it's really not good. As we consider this passage of Scripture today, these verses that the Apostle Paul puts to us in Colossians 3 here call us as Christians to go beyond the mediocre. There are too many believers that are satisfied with mediocre Christianity. They go to church on Sunday morning. You know, they they actually literally attend the house of God. They show up to church. But their desire really for anything more than that is non-existent. You know, a, a weekly, throughout the week, A daily pursuit of holiness is not really something that's on their radar. They're happy with just a a casual, mediocre Christianity. This was one thing that was really hammered home to me recently um, as we my, my wife and I lead mission teams for the denomination for the free church. And just this past July, we were in Maine helping our brother John Kelly, who is seeking to start a new work in northern Maine. Basically, every door we knocked on, and we knocked on almost every single door in the city, it's a a small town where his church is actually located, all but about five or six homes were Roman Catholic. And what we heard from every home, almost, I would say 80%, were, I'm good. I, I don't need anything. I'm good. I'm okay. And we would press them. Have you ever been born again? Well, what's shocking to find out is these are people that would claim to go to Mass every single week. And they never heard what it means to be born again. It, it was a phrase, it, it was a concept that they knew nothing of. And I contrasted that with what I experience where I'm from. So I was born in Alabama, deep south, what many would refer to as the Bible Belt of the United States. And my life experience has been in Alabama, South Carolina, and now I live in North Carolina. So this would be really the stretch of what we would call the Bible Belt. And where I'm from, if you go door to door and invite people to church, give them tracts, seek to give the gospel to people door to door, what you'll find is everybody goes to church. Everybody claims to go to church. I remember when we lived in Georgia, I was in Georgia for about six years outside the city of Atlanta, and there was one particular church. If you went door to door, knocking doors, inviting people, no, I go to such and such Baptist church. No, I go to such and such Baptist church. And it finally dawned on me one time, I knew this church, I knew where this church was, and I thought, man, if all the people that claimed to go to this church actually showed up on a Sunday, they wouldn't fit in the parking lot. The place just wasn't that big. But yet everybody, I go to to such and such a place. I go to this church. I go here. I go here. I'm already a Christian. And you would think that by the sheer numbers of people that claim the name of Christ that it would be far more godly than it is. But you see, it's just mediocre. It's just average. It's just barely enough to get by. Just barely enough to, to actually be called Christian rather than, you, know, ungodly. I wonder if that's where you live. I wonder if you are satisfied with just a mediocre Christian existence. You show up at church, you stand up at the right time, you sit down at the right time, you bow your head at the right time, you turn to the right page in your Bible, you, maybe you even take notes. But you would have to say on an analysis of your Christian life, it just is mediocre. I know, believe me, I know and I understand, it is easy to let your guard down. It's easy to fall into a life of mediocrity because it's a whole lot easier to just go with the flow. It's much easier in the workplace to just go along with what everybody else is doing rather than saying, no, I'm sorry, I can't participate in that. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. No, I can't go out with you guys this evening after work to this place because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I can't do this, that, or the other thing. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I take this stand. It's hard in an evil world to live as a Christian. I understand. But this passage calls us away from a life of mediocrity and to a life that is lived on higher ground. I didn't pick the hymns this morning. Reverend Gallagher picked the hymns, wonderful hymns especially to set our mind on on the Lord's table. But had I chosen hymns, I would have had us sing that hymn, you might know, that says, I'm pressing on the upward way to gain new heights every day. The second stanza of of that hymn says, My heart has no desire to stay where doubts arise and fears dismay. Though some may dwell where these abound, my prayer, my aim is higher ground. In these verses, Paul seeks or calls us to seek those things which are above. And what better day than today to resolve in your own heart by the Lord's help that you will seek higher ground, that you will seek those things which are above. So as we look at these verses more closely this morning, I want to break them down into just two individual parts. I want us to look at these verses, first of all, to to see the reasons that Paul gives us as to why we should set our affections on things above. And then I want us to kind of back away from the text a little bit and look at what I'm going to just simply refer to as the content of those things that we are actually setting our affections on. What is Paul talking about when he says set your affections on things above? What does he mean by this? And so those are the two things that I want us to focus on here this morning. And so first of all, we're going to look at the reasons to set your affections on things above. And in the verse, Paul gives three reasons. And it's in some ways difficult to to deal with one, two, and three as individual separate things because they're so closely connected that there's so much overlap in what Paul means by what he says here and the reasons that he gives us that we kind of have to deal with all three together, but we need to deal with all three individually. So the first one we see is in verse number one, the first reason is because you have been risen with Christ. That's why you are to set your affections on things above. You've been risen with Christ. And so if you look closely at the text, you'll see verse 1 starts with the word if. Now, you have to understand in the original Greek text, <coughs> conditions were written in various ways. And not to get all super technical and complicated, but I think you have heard preached before that often when you read the word if in the authorized version, really the, the, the sense, sorry, but the sense of the word is the word sense. Right? Paul is not calling into question whether or not they have been risen with Christ. The construction in Greek here is Paul assumes that they have already been risen with Christ. And so, instead of reading the word if there, read the word since. And so, it's, it's really in this way. Since it's true that you have been risen with Christ, then here's the result. Seek those things which are above. And so, Paul is assuming that these original readers in the church in Colossae, and then as this letter was distributed from church to church... Paul is addressing believers. You've been risen with Christ. And so because of that, seek those things which are above. And then the second reason, uh, we'll skip down to verse three. It says, for ye are dead. So verse three starts with the word for. But one thing I would encourage you to, to always be mindful of When you read the word for in the authorized version, very, very often, it's appropriate to substitute the word because. It it is, in essence, the the Greek word underneath that is, in essence, a statement of purpose. It's a reason why. Because. And that's the second reason that you have to seek those things which are above. Because you have died with Christ. It says, because ye are dead. Now, what does Paul mean by that when he says you're dead? Now, don't be confused because your mind, if you're astute to the scriptures, your mind might go to Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul tells us there that you were dead in trespasses and sins. But now he's saying that you are dead. Dead. He's not talking about the same thing. He's talking about a different kind of death. So let me explain. In Ephesians chapter 2, what Paul is talking about, those that are dead in trespasses and sins, he's talking about that spiritual death that came upon all men because of Adam's sin. That spiritual death that we're all born with. This, he's talking about something different. Now he's talking to believers, and here's the irony. Don't don't miss the irony. He's talking to believers that have been quickened or made alive in Christ. But yet, though we've been made alive in Christ, at the same time, Paul says, you're dead. And so he's not trying to be confusing. What does he mean? when he tells believers that they're dead? Well, we have to understand this from the larger scope of scripture. What Paul is talking about here is that believers are dead to the law. They're dead to sin. They're dead to the world. And in that sense, you've died with Christ. He goes on to say that your life is hid with Christ in God. We're going to develop that a little bit more in just a moment but when he says here that believers are dead they're dead to the law now what would that mean the law can no longer condemn you because if you are in christ christ has perfectly fulfilled that law he has obeyed in every single point of the law what we're talking about is the the ten commandments god's moral law Christ has obeyed in every part of that law. He's fulfilled that for you. And in justification, that obedience of Christ has been imputed to you by faith alone so that you're no longer condemned by the law. That's why Paul in Romans 7 can say, the things that I'm supposed to do, I don't do. The things that I'm not supposed to do, I do. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But what's the beginning of chapter 8? There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why is there no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus? Because the law can no longer condemn one who is justified by Christ, because we stand clothed in that perfect righteousness. And so we're dead to the law. The the law can't bother us. The law can't condemn us anymore. Christ was condemned on our behalf. Christ died on our behalf. And he paid the penalty of a broken law. We're dead to sin. Now, what does that mean? That sounds confusing because if you're like me, you've already sinned today. And so how can... How can we understand the scripture's meaning that we're dead to sin? Well, what we have to understand here is the the broader understanding of scripture that the strength of sin is the law. And since Christ has fulfilled the law, there is no condemnation to us. The strength of sin is dead to us. Maybe, maybe it's better to say that it is dying to us because of what we'll see here. Secondly, we're, we're dead to sin. We're dead to the world. We're dead to the law. We're dead to sin. We're dead to the world. But what does that mean? The world's still out there. We, we still have some attraction to the things of the world. We see the lights. We see the glitter. We see the shiny thing. And we want the, the shiny sinful thing. But yet what does our catechism teach us about our sanctification, our growing in grace. What is that process? What what does that process involve? It involves a dying unto sin and a living unto righteousness. It involves day by day. The trinkets of this world, the worldliness that this life would have to offer to the believer becomes less and less appealing and the glories of heaven become more and more appealing that's what it is to be dead to the world to be dead to sin to be dead to the law and so because of that set your affections on things above but then he gives us a third thing there at the end of verse three and that is because your life is hid with christ in god Your life is hid with Christ in God. Like I said, these three things all go together. You've been risen with Christ. And so even that speaks of something of our union with Christ. We're dead. Why are we dead? Because we're united to Christ. And then here he gets really more to the point. Your life is hid with Christ in God. We get our English word cryptic from the Greek word that's used here for hid. Something that's cryptic is something that is hidden. It's something that's in a code. It's something that the average person just can't understand unless you know the code. You have to know the secret code to undo the cryptic message. I have a brother, uh, two and a half years younger than me, that is not a believer And this past Christmas, my parents invited him to come to their Christmas Eve service. Now, you wouldn't remember the way the calendar worked out. Maybe you do. But this past year, so December 24th of 2022, Christmas Eve was on a Saturday. And then Christmas Day fell on a Sunday. And so my parents' church had a Christmas Eve service on Saturday night. And then on Sunday morning, Christmas Day, they had another, you know, their regular Sunday church service. And my parents invited my brother to come to both of these services. And he's like, well, why would you go to both? Why would you go go to both services? It didn't make sense to him. Because you see, as as an unbeliever, he has no heart for the things of God. He has no understanding and he has really no spiritual reference point. There's no hook or there's, there's no anchor that he can use to discern, well, why would you want to be in the Lord's house two days in a row? That doesn't make sense. I would never do that. Why would you do that? There's no reference point. Maybe you've found things like that in your own life as a Christian. Maybe it's with family. Maybe it's with coworkers. Maybe it's with longtime friends. You'll say something about church. You'll you'll say something about the particular church that you go to and, and the way things are done at your own particular church. And they don't get it. They just don't understand, it it doesn't make any sense to them. They have no understanding of it because their life is not hid with Christ in God. They, They don't have any reference point to understand how your life has been changed, how your desires, your motives, your affections, now we're all completely different than what they used to be. You don't care about the things of this world the way that you used to care about them. There's something, if I can use the word here, there's something cryptic about the Christian life that we as Christians understand one another. If your affections have been made new, you understand what it is when another Christian talks about their affections for the things of the Lord. They may have stronger affections than you and, and you look at that with some appropriate level of jealousy. Of I wish my heart was drawn out after the things of Christ more. I, I realize it's not and I, I wish I was more like you. But do you know what it is for your life to be hid with Christ in God? There's another perspective that we can take on this. Kind of leaving the cryptic idea. Your life being hid with Christ in God. This is a place of safety. Your soul is in a place of safety when it is hid with Christ in God. You are familiar with the hymn by Horatio Spafford it is well with my soul that's what it is for your life to be hid with Christ in God you can say it is well with my soul and so because of all these things you think of these as a Christian and you have to come to a conclusion what other conclusion is there than for me to set my affections on things above If these things are true, if I've been hid with Christ in God, if if my life is changed because of the gospel, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to the world, I'm dead to the law, I've been risen with Christ, you put all this together, I've been united to him in the gospel. Then what else would you want to do but to set your affections on things above? And that's what Paul calls us to. And so what is he talking about? So we have to move on secondly to the content. What is it that we're setting our affections on? The the content of your affections that are set on things above. And in verse one, Paul mentions one of them. So he says, since you've been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, so here's the first aspect of our content, and that is Christ's intercession at the right hand of the Father. So if we're to set our affections, if, if our, our mindset, our thinking is to be above, what are we thinking about? Well, here's the first suggestion, Christ's intercession at the right hand of the Father. For one, this leaves no doubt about the direction of our affections. Christ is seated in the heavens. We read Psalm 115. The heathen say, where is your God? All the stuff's going on in the world, all these bad headlines, all this negative stuff. Where's God? If God's real, why is he not doing anything? And we as believers have a ready response to that mockery and to that accusation. Our God is in the heavens. He has done exactly what he has been pleased to do in this world. And what he is doing is for his own honor and for his own glory and ultimately for the good of his people. And our God has done all things well. And so we know where God is. And we know what's happening at the throne of God. We know what's taking place. There's God the Father and there is God the Son seated at his right hand. And what do we learn about him? What is the activity of the Godhead in heaven? Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. Christ is constantly and consistently interceding for you. What is he, what is he interceding for? What, how is he doing this? He's continually pleading the merits of his blood. He's continually pleading the merits of his death And resurrection. He died on behalf of his people. He came to save his people from their sins. And so he pleads those merits. He says to the father, I have shed my blood. I have redeemed a people. I have kept your law. These are those that I have purchased. This one, this is one that is my child. This is one that belongs to me. This is one that I died for bless. Your union with Christ, all this that we talked about at the beginning, you're being risen with Christ, you're being dead, your your life being hid with Christ and God, all is secured by the death of Christ, by the work of Christ. And he continues on that work of intercession on your behalf. The right hand of the Father is a place of honor and authority, and that's where Christ is seated interceding for you it's a place of satisfaction because god is satisfied with the work of christ it is god who told christ sit at my right hand christ himself is satisfied with his work he has seen the travail of his soul and he is satisfied there's no more work for christ to do in that sense other than that ongoing work of intercession, interceding on behalf of his people. And so when we set our affections on things above, what we're, what we're thinking about, what we cannot help but thinking about is the intercessory, intercessory work of Christ. And that's inseparable from the second thing I want to point your attention to, and that is Christ's work on your behalf. And that's at the very heart of what we come to when we come to the Lord's table. We are coming to a place this morning that Christ has specifically set aside for us. And he has said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. I want you to remember what I have done. Now, it's interesting. You study the the Ten Commandments, The first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second commandment is thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image, the likeness of anything in heaven above or the earth below, the waters under the earth, no creeping thing. And we understand from the second commandment that it teaches us how to worship. The first commandment teaches us who to worship. The second commandment teaches us how to worship. We're not to worship with AIDS. I put it this way to try to be just very simplistic. The second commandment, thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image, is not the commandment that teaches us we're not allowed to bow down to a statue of Buddha. The second commandment doesn't address Buddha in that sense. And I use Buddha just as kind of the generic statue of a God that somebody would bow down to, right? So the second commandment is not the commandment that says you can't worship Buddha. The first commandment has already established that. The first commandment tells us there's only one God to worship, Jehovah. So Buddha's already taken care of. The second commandment deals with how we're to worship that one true God who alone we must worship with no aids, no symbols, nothing. He's left us nothing. There's no likeness of of God that we're given, that we are to fashion for ourselves to worship. But when Christ came to the end of his ministry and he sat with his disciples there in that upper room, He said, here is something that I want you to use. Here's a divine emblem that I want you to use in perpetuity until I come again that you are to remember me by. And so he picked up from the table a, a piece of bread that they had just finished eating the Passover meal. So he picks up this piece of bread And in a symbolic way, he held that, and as his disciples were watching, and mind you, if you read the passages and the harmonies closely, there were only 11 there. Judas had already left. So Christ did not give this to Judas. Judas was gone. He held the bread, and he broke it. And he said, this is a picture of what I am about to do for you. My body is going to be broken for you. And I want you to remember this. And so in perpetuity in the church of Jesus Christ, we come to a table like this to remember that Christ's body was broken for us. And then he picked up a cup that had grape juice in it, the, the fruit of the vine. And he said, this, I want, when you look at this, I want you to remember my blood. I want you to remember that I shed my blood for you. It is blood that makes an atonement for the soul. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And so he said, here's, here's the cup. And I want you to always remember, when you hold this cup, I want you to remember my bloodshed. And so we have here our, our focus pointed specifically on really the sum and substance of the work of Christ on our behalf. Broken body and shed blood. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And so we set our affections on things above as we consider what we've already looked at, the fact that Christ is interceding for us. We set our affections on things above, especially this morning, as we consider the broken body and shed blood of Christ. And then one third thing I would leave you just kind of as a connection with what we've just talked about. This do in remembrance of me, you you do all this till he comes. And so that other aspect of our setting our affections on things above is always being reminded of the fact that Christ is coming again. We might have a nuance of disagreement as to the the hows and the wherefores of the millennial views and rapture views. And we, we can have those profitable conversations from Scripture. But we all are on the same page in understanding Christ in the same body that rose to heaven is coming again. He's going to come again, and he's going to receive us to himself, and we shall ever be with the Lord. And again, we can, we can discuss some nuances of how all that's going to play out, but we all believe that that's going to happen. Christ is coming again. And what we're reminded of in Christ's, especially the Olivet Discourse about this, is to constantly and always be watching and ready because Christ is coming again. And so we're motivated there to set our affections on things above and we're to think specifically on this, especially as we come to this Lord's table, this perpetual ordinance for the Lord's people to remember his death till he come. And so may the Lord help us this morning to set our affections on things above and may this table that's set before us be specifically a help to that end. Amen. We'll take our uh, hymnals now, and I want you to turn to hymn number 137. If you've not been to communion here before, uh, if you're not a member of this particular body, uh, we in the Free Presbyterian Church don't practice close communion, so you don't have to be a member of the church necessarily, to partake of communion. If you are born again, you've been baptized, you're walking with the Lord, this is the Lord's table, and so you are welcome to partake. What we'll do, just so that we're all understanding and all on the same page, I know you have different ministers come from time to time to administer the Lord's table, so just so that there's not a lot of confusion, what we'll do is we'll sing the first two stanzas of number 137 when I survey the wondrous cross and then the men will come and distribute the bread. We'll read the words of institution. We'll all collectively partake of the bread and then we'll distribute the cup and then we'll read the words of institution, pray, partake of the cup and then we'll close with the remainder of the hymn. I would encourage you as the elements are distributed that you take that time just in silent prayer to examine your own heart. That's what we're uh, commanded, encouraged to do when Paul deals with the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11. We're to examine ourselves. And so it's a time of confessing your own sins before the Lord. Uh, This is not a table for strong believers This is a table for believers. If you perceive yourself to be weak in faith, this is a means of grace to strengthen and encourage faith. So may the Lord use it to that end. So hymn number 137, we'll sing the first two stanzas together and then we'll partake of the bread.